0: All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Ashley Clendenin, and I am the director of LS Kids. Today, we get a special treat. The kids are going to lead us all in the Lord's Prayer. Please. We will be reciting Matthew 6, 9 through thirteen, which is found on page 811 in the Bible's around the room. When we are finished, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You will say, thanks be to God. Pray then like this of heaven, be hallowed be your name. Here kingdom come. your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with incredible joy what you say to us today. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will, although Jesus Christ our Lord be through Jesus Christ our Lord, because your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen. All right, well, good morning, church. That was a good little treat, wasn't it? We do that, uh, we wanted to do that because it's a good reminder that the children are just as much a part of the body of Christ as uh, the people sitting in this room. And um, it's not like once you turn a certain age, you all of a sudden become a Christian. Um, When you believe in Christ, you are a Christian and you are a member of the body. And as members of the body, we have a responsibility to care for those little souls and to guide them to Christ. Um, we are in the Lord's Prayer today. So if you don't have a Bible open, open one to page 811. My name is Kyle, for those of you who are guests. And uh, it is popping in here today. And uh, I'm, I'm excited about that because today is, I'm hoping, will be one of the most uh, helpful things for your, for your walk with Jesus. Uh, Because today we're talking about the specifics on how and what to pray. We're going through the Lord's, or we're going through the Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to a point where he talked about the posture of prayer, which we talked about last week. And then this week he talks about the content of our prayers. Now in 1535, there was a great theological giant named, he wasn't physically a giant. He was just a really important man. His name was Martin Luther. And um, Peter Beskendorf was his barber, which is kind of funny because if you've ever seen Martin Luther's haircuts, it doesn't take much skill. It's like you put a ball on his head and cut around. And uh, he, Peter Beskendorf asked him for some, some practical guidance on how to pray. And so what Martin Luther did is he wrote his barber a letter, giving him some advice. And that uh, turned into uh, a book called The Simple Way to Pray. And in it, Martin Luther just walked through the content of the Lord's Prayer. And he said, if you want to learn how to pray, this is how you pray. And it's good advice because this is exactly what Jesus said. If you see in verse 9, which if you're new to the Bible, the the large numbers in your Bible are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. In verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 52 words, six prompts. And and Jesus is showing us this, this prayer as a way of, of, this is what it looks like to pray. And when he says this, he's, he's not saying, what I want you to do for the rest of your life is to... Repeat this with vain repetition. Um, That's to empty this prayer of all of its meaning and power. Jesus instead is giving us, uh, he's saying, "Here's, here's six prayer prompts that can tether you back to what to pray when your mind starts wandering. I've been a pastor long enough to hear many phrases that go like this. Pastor, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to finish. My prayers aren't very good. when I start praying, then my mind just starts wandering off. What about that UFC fight last night? Who's gonna win today? What am I gonna eat for lunch? Does anybody feel this? Well, if you are ever asking any of those questions, today is for you. And I would commend to you that you memorize these 52 words. And if you haven't already memorized them, and if you feel like that's too big of a challenge, I would recommend write them down on a card because I really believe that this is a prayer that Jesus wants us to pray every day. And I was reading this uh, early on Wednesday morning and, and, and I really got, came to that conclusion when I, when I was meditating on this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And, and Jesus says, give us today our bread, meaning tomorrow we have to ask for more bread. <laughs> And I think that what he's saying is this is the content that should form your prayers every day. Now, the good thing about these six prayer prompts is they can pray to be prayed in many ways. Um, so you, can, uh, you can pray each one of these and then really meditate on it and, and, and pray for it for a long time and go on like an hour prayer walk. Sometimes I do this and I just go through the Lord's prayer. Because a lot of times as a, you, th- you would think as a pastor, I'm like, know what I'm supposed to pray. I don't, but this gives me guidance. Guidance. And so I go out on a prayer walk, and I just go through the lines of the Lord's Prayer, and then I just use those as my prompts, and I just start praying things about those prompts. Um, You can pray this quickly. If you're going into a meeting, you can just meditate on each one of these lines and ask God to show up based on the content of what you are praying there. You can pray this for yourself. You can pray this for your family. You can pray this for your church. You can pray this for your city. You can pray this for the country. You can pray this for politicians. You can pray this for the world. I really believe that I could preach on this prayer every week for a year and only be scratching the surface. Maybe I'll have to try that. But to keep it simple, here's the big idea. This prayer is what to pray every day. This prayer is what to pray every day. So we're gonna just go through the prayer, the six lines of the prayer, and I hope it will bless you. And, that, and after this, you can feel like you actually have the tools in your tool belt to know how to pray. So first, Jesus says, our Father in heaven. The first thing that Jesus asks us to do is not make a request from God, but to think about God. In fact, the whole of Christianity has at the bedrock, at the very foundation, meditation on God. Christianity is not primarily beginning with what you do for God. It's thinking about what he has done for us and who he is in relation to who we are. It starts with who God is. And Jesus says that God is our father. And so when we pray to him, we need to be remembering. And the first thing he asks us to think about is that he cares of us like a loving father cares for his child. And that's how he wants us to approach him. Though God is almighty king of the universe, amen? He does not want us to approach him like a slave approaches a master. He invites us to approach us as a child approaches their daddy. In fact, it says as we went over in Romans that God has given us the spirit of adoption that we might call him Abba, which is the Aramaic word for daddy. And this also means that he's our father, that God is interested in your life. Look at me. Many of you have come in here and you think that God is up there. He's like the the old man in the sky. He's the higher power, but he really doesn't give a care about you. And that's false. God is your father, and like a loving father who takes interest in their children, God cares about you. And some of you need to hear that this morning. He is interested in your life. Not only does God love you, he likes you. Now there's a lot of people who don't like you and who don't like me. But God does. He takes interest in your life. He's your loving father. He gets you. <laughs> this also means that God wants to be relationally connected with us. God is not interested in vain religion. He's not interested in, uh, you know, people just showing up and going through the motions and acting good. God is interested in intimate relationship with his people. He's He wants to be deeply connected with us. This also means that God has your best in mind and will do what's best for you, even if you don't think it's what's best for you. He's our father in heaven. Now, when a child asks things from the father, you can't always say yes if you're a loving father (laughs) because the child has limited information. A child doesn't know what is, best for their life. That's why God gives children mothers and fathers. And so when we pray to God as our father, it's also an invitation to surrender to his will, knowing that he will do what's best for us, even if we disagree, but we can still know that he loves us. Now, when I say the word father, it affects every one of us in a different way, and it affects all of us deeply, doesn't it? It's because it touches us at the core of the human relationships that have formed our very identity. When I say the word Father, it is impossible for any one of us to have no emotional reaction. And numbness is an emotional reaction. When I say the word Father, some of you get anxious, some of you get happy, some of you get joyful. Some of you get angry, some of you get numb, some of you get bitter, some of you get apathetic. But God knows what he's doing in telling us to pray this word. For some of you, it's easier to relate to God as king than it is as father. Anybody like that? You're like, I get the whole God as king thing. I have a really hard time with God as father. God knows the weightiness of this word. He knows that this word gets us all out of sorts. And just like your father on earth, whether you want to admit it or not, has had a large influence on shaping who you are today. God is saying to you, you call me father because I'm gonna reshape you. And in telling us to come to him as father, it's giving us an invitation for renewal. It's giving us an invitation to be reformed in a sense to be recreated. And so don't let your problem with this word keep you from praying it. When you come to God as your father, he will heal those deepest wounds of your soul. Now, it doesn't say my father. What does it say, church? Our father, right? Our father. And what this means is that one of the big things that Jesus came to do, uh, he came to die for our sins, amen? We are forgiven people. But he didn't just come to give us a fresh start. He came to give us a place to belong. We have a community now. And so when you say our father, you should be thinking vertically about your relationship with God, but you should also be thinking horizontally that you have a family that you belong to. We have a family. God saved you, not just to forgive you, but to make you belong. And that's good news. Many in here have been divorced and are lonely, are widowed and are lonely, have been left alone by their parents, and are lonely. Have been broken up with by their boyfriend or girlfriend and are lonely. But you don't need to live in lonely despair because here you have a family. You have a place to belong. And you will forever have a place to belong. And even if some horrible thing happened and you had to move to another country to flee for your life, there will be Christians there that you will have a place to belong. And even if you can't speak the same language, there will be such unity of the spirit that you will have belonging of the family of heaven. Because the family of heaven is every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, every socioeconomic status, and every age. And so he's not just our father, he's not just our father, but he's our father in heaven. And I love this because our father is this intimate language in heaven is this huge language. He's big, he's powerful, he's controlling the galaxies. Like we're always amazed by the Hubble telescope, discovering new things. God's like, yeah, I've known about that for a while. I mean, in fact, I put it there. (laughs) He's the creator and sustainer of all things. There are some animals living at the depths of the sea or on tops of mountains that humans will never discover. And God put him there and cares for them for his pleasure and his pleasure alone. That's how big he is. He's the one who brings rain on the earth. He's the one who controls all governments. He's the God of all nations and kingdoms. He's the King of Kings. There is nothing too big for him to handle. And some of us don't go to God in prayer because we really have a small view of God. But this wonderful line Reminds us that he cares and he's huge and nothing is too big for his shoulders. And it also reminds us that there is nothing he does not see. You may be telling somebody a story of something that happened to you and nobody believes you, but God knows, he sees. You may be feeling like you're getting mistreated and abused. You may, you may be in a marriage that you feel like you just don't know what to do and it's hard to articulate to others. God sees and God knows because he's the God of heaven. And so we can also be confident that since he sees all things, there's nothing, nothing that catches him off guard. God's never surprised. And sometimes we need to cling that in in midst of great tragedy. And then trying to make sense of a world that is trying to just spiral out of control, we need to remember that God's got this in his loving hands. And so when we pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, it's important to remember both aspects of God. Some of us are going to be more inclined to emphasize he's in heaven. And we're not going to want to connect with him in relationship. And then others of us are going to be more inclined to connect with us in in relationship. But we're going to forget how big he really is. But you cannot separate the two. He's our Father in heaven. And so what this causes us to do is four things when we pray. Number one, we pray courageously because we know that he's big, and nothing's too big for his hands. Number two, we pray confidently knowing that he really does care. Psalm 62 says this, trust in the Lord at all times, pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. Think about that word, pour out your heart. When you pour something out, it is not clean. It makes a mess. And God is inviting you to give him your mess because he cares about you. Third thing it calls us to do is pray humbly. So you should pray confidently like, yeah, God cares. And like, that should warm your heart, but it should also scare the heck out of you because he's in heaven. You're not just talking to your bro. You're not just talking to you know, your girl. You're, you're talking to the God of heaven. And there should be a holy trembling that comes upon us when we talk to him, but also a humble confidence Knowing that he cares. And then lastly, we pray genuinely. When my kids come and talk to me, they don't feel like they have to talk proper in order to get me to listen. And I love it. And God doesn't want you to feel like you have to talk proper. Just use your normal language to talk to him because he wants to listen. Pray genuinely to him. So, our Father in heaven, this is what to pray every day. That's the first prompt. So what it looks like is you're going and you're praying. You walk in, you're you're praying, okay, our father in heaven, and you just start thinking about those things, meditating on who he is and you give God your cares, you remember that he's you you thank him for caring for you and then you can move on to the next line. The next line is hallowed be your name. Now hallowed is a funny word, isn't it? What does hallowed mean? The word hallowed means set apart as holy. It means set apart as special, as something to be honored. Um, at my house, we have these red plates that say, you are special, you are special, you are special. And at, on your birthday, you get the red plate. <laughs> You're special. It's set apart to honor the person. And so God, the word hallow means to set God apart to be honored. Honored above any relationship. Honored above your wife. Honored above your boyfriend. Honored above your girlfriend. Honored above your kids. God is to be honored above all. Another way to think about um, the word hallowed is it means to be put at the center. If you think about it, every one of us builds our lives around what we deem to be most important. And so when we say hallow your name, you're saying, we're, we're praying, God, we wanna build our lives around you. And let's be honest, a lot of us build our lives around retirement, around money, around comfort, around security, around approval. And God says, get rid of all of that and put me at the center because all that other stuff can be taken away from you in an instant, but God will never be taken away from you. We were made to have him at the center. And every time we try to put something else at the center, we only find more emptiness. Maybe that's why some of you have so much emptiness is because other things are at the center of your heart. You need to hallow his name. And so practically what this means when you pray, hallowed be your name, it means that you're asking God to reestablish himself at the center. Because let's be frank, we're not strong enough to put him there. He's got to do the work to put Him at this, himself at the center. Second thing we're doing is we're, we're praying that God or that the world would see him for who he really is. Hear me clearly. God's name isn't hallowed. God's name doesn't have value because we give him value. When you give God value, you're only aligning yourself with what all of creation already knows. He has eternal value. So you're just agreeing with it. And so when you say, hallowed be your name for the world, when you're praying that prayer for your work, for for the schools around you, for your neighborhood, you're saying, God, just help people to recognize the value that you deserve. Help people to see the treasure that you really are. And then lastly, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to help us make life about him. And so what this looks like for me is when I get up here and I'm walking up to the stage, I often say, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name. Because I know there's a part of my heart that even though I'm saying give glory to God, there's a part of my heart that says give glory to me. And when you go to work, you should be praying, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, because you want it to be about him. When the musicians get up here, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name. At mom at home, hallowed be your name. It's about him. It's not about us. Not about us. This shows us that we were created to hallow. We were created to honor. We just honor the wrong things all the time. And so God is only inviting us not to do something. He's not inviting us to do something that we're not already doing. We're already hallowing. He's just trying to invite us to do something that we were created to do, which was hallow him. That's what it means to hallow his name. And so as you're praying for your work, as you're praying for the city, as you're praying for our country, as you're praying for these elections coming up, a prayer of the church should be, hallowed be your name. God, would you just put your name at the center? And then we get to the next line. As we pray every day, your kingdom come. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This word kingdom, again, roots us in who we are praying to. You're gonna find that through the whole of the Lord's prayer. God's constantly remind you who he is. He's a king. God is not simply a nice counselor who wants to give you advice. He is not a coach who wants to help you win at life. God is the sovereign king of the universe. And as Jesus people, remember, we remember that Jesus came to establish the father's kingdom in a visible way on earth. But I I read a tweet this last week from Tim Keller. I didn't know Tim Keller's on Twitter, but he is. (laughs) And he said, if we're honest, we would prefer Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. You know, a consultant, consultants are great because you don't have to take their advice. But a king, you have to listen. God's a king. And whenever we align ourselves with God, it works out in our souls. And a lot of times it works out in practical life. But whenever we try to do things our own way, it doesn't work out. And so when we're praying your kingdom come, what we're saying is bring the kingdom of heaven, bring heaven down here on earth so it seems like we are starting to see heaven on earth. That's what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are light, be light. You are salt, be salty. He's saying, you are supposed, the church is supposed to be the light of the world in the midst of a dark place. The world is a dark place. The church is supposed to be a place that is visibly different that visibly shows a demonstration of what heaven is like. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we're saying, God, make those realities realities now, not just in the future. So in heaven, if you think about what it is like in heaven, in heaven, God is there, seen and felt. There is no doubting him. In heaven, sin is forgiven. Hatred is squashed. Evil is destroyed. Beauty is undefiled. Nothing is perverted. All relationships are filled with love. Every race and ethnicity is represented and valued. There is no division. Everyone is thankful. Peace reigns. Anxiety is forgotten. Loneliness is non-existent. Death, sickness, and destruction are no more. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that those realities would become realities here on earth. That's what the world hungers for. Is heaven. And so when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying for revival. Revival is an old churchy word, and it just simply means for God to wake people up and to start making good things happen. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, these two phrases can't be separated. With the coming of God's kingdom is the coming of his will. And when God's will is done, God's kingdom is seen. But God's kingdom will not come unless his will is done. And this is what Jesus came to do. In the book of John, he said, my food is to do the will of the father. He's like, I don't need to eat. I just do the will of the father. I came to show us what the will of God looks like. And to follow God means that you want what he wants over what you want. That's what keeps a lot of people from following Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus saving them and forgiving them, but they don't like the idea of Jesus saying, you have to do what I want. And that's only because they don't realize that what Jesus wants is really what's best. There is no way to pray your kingdom come without praying my will be gone. So how are we supposed to pray this prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. He tells us right there in the next line, on earth as it is in heaven. I remember listening years ago to a John Piper sermon and he said, if you think about how God's will is done in heaven, it happens immediately. When God gives a command in heaven, the angels don't be like, well, you know, God, I don't know. There's no hymn and hymn. There's no delay, there's no backtalk from the angels, there's no disrespect, there's no halfway obedience, it's just done and it's done perfectly. And so when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're saying is God, help me to be that kind of person so that when you say to do it, I just do it immediately. Not half-heartedly, not him and han. not disrespecting, not delaying, not talking back, I just do your will because I believe your will is best for my life. And so what we're praying when we're praying your kingdom come, your will be done is we're praying for revival, fix what is broken, revive this place back to life. We're also praying for God to help us surrender. You ever have a hard decision that you have to make and you're just like, I just don't know what to do. What you need to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done. Help me surrender because I can't do it on my own. We're also praying for God to grant us obedience. Some people call the church an embassy. Do you know what an embassy is? An embassy is in another country. The United States will have an embassy. And within that country, if you wanted to get United States culture and food and and even United States politics and rule, you can go into the embassy. And the church is supposed to be an embassy in this foreign land. So that people want to know what heaven is like, they need to see the church, We need to be a visible embassy for a broken world. And so that's what we're praying for. We're praying that the church would be obedient to God's will. And then lastly, we're praying for an exercise of God's mercy. Because sometimes life is so disorienting and there's so much tragedy that happens. There's so much deep wounds that happened that we're like, I don't even know what to pray. You just pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, have mercy. You know, and it's okay for me not to know because you know. That's what we're praying when we pray every day. The fourth thing is give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is a prayer for provision. Again, it's rooted in identity. God is the creator. God is the provider. We are the creation. As capable as you are of providing, some of you work your tails off, and I'm proud of you. Good, Christians should do that. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't take much for us to lose our provision. Bad luck, a severe drought, famine, war, economic collapse, somebody in your family going through a severe illness, a terrible accident could take our provision away like this. And I've sat with several people in my office who are millionaires, hard workers, and lost everything in a matter of months. And so this prayer is a prayer to remind us that at the end of the day, God is the one who is the provider, not us. As I like, my dad has often reminded me, God is the one who signs my check, (laughs) not my boss. And instead of waiting for misfortune to happen for us to start praying for God to provide, we're in a time of economic prosperity. I bet you a lot of you haven't prayed for God to provide. Some of you have, because it's hard right now, but a lot of us are like, yeah, it's awesome. You don't even think about it. Jesus says, you do need to think about it every day. And so he's saying, I'm providing. And so when we pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we're, we're praying three things. Number one, we're thanking God for his daily provision. Every time you eat, put on clothes, receive a paycheck and sleep under a roof, roof, not a roof. Every time you, Sleep under a home or wherever you're at, you should thank God that he has provided. He's our provider. Give thanks. It's easy to look in the closet. Let's go. Come on. We've said this at our house before. It's easy to look in our closet and say, I have no clothes. (laughs) No, you just don't have any clothes you want to wear right now, or that might not fit you the way you want them to fit. It's easy to look in the fridge or the pantry and say, we have no food. What are we going to eat? Well, there's plenty of food in there. You just don't want to cook it or, you know, you just don't want to eat it because it's not the best. So Jesus asking us to pray, give us this day our daily bread is is a mind shift. And it really does shift your mind when you pray this prayer. So when you're going and you're praying, God, give us this day our daily bread, you start thinking, wow, you really have provided. You really have taken care of me. Man, I don't have everything I want. I don't have the new truck I want right now, but you really have given me everything I need which leads me to my next thing. It's, it, the next thing that you're praying when you pray this is you're praying God, for God to continue providing the bare necessities. He says daily prayer or daily bread, not daily steak. <laughs> not daily sushi. Not daily feast. Daily bread. It's a prayer of faith. Because when you pray this prayer, you're just saying, give me bare necessities for today and I trust that you'll give me bare necessities for tomorrow. When we pray this as a church, we often pray, God, give us what we need to do ministry well. And then if you give us extra, help us to be generous with it. Which leads me to my last thing. When you pray this prayer, you're praying that God would help you be the expression of his provision. Most of us in this room, are living in a time where we have plenty. And when you get to the part of the Lord's prayer and you're talking to God and you say, give us this day our daily bread, you remember all the provision that God has given you. You start to remember there's lots of people in this world who don't have daily bread. There's lots of people in this world who don't have good water. There's lots of people in this world who are really going without. And you start to say, God, maybe the way that you're gonna provide for them is through me. And you start to say, okay, God, if you've provided for me, help me provide for others. And you start to just hold your, your stuff open-handedly, your, your, your finances open-handedly. And, um, you know, it's possible for God to give people provision miraculously. He did it in the book of Exodus. He rained down bread from heaven. Was they ate it. It was sweet and like honey, like cornflakes. <laughs> but that's not his normal way of provision, isn't it? God's normal way of provision, if you read the whole scripture, is through people working and through the church providing. And so this is a call for Christians, and I'm hammering on this, and I have been for the last several weeks, for Christians to be generous to the poor. This is a call for Christians to be generous to those who go without. And you might be saying, but if I provide for others, I won't have provision for myself. Well, Psalm 3725, the psalmist writes, I've never seen a righteous person who is generous end up begging for food. God will continue to provide. So it's a prayer of faith. When you pray this prayer every day and you get to give us this day our daily bread, you're remembering those things. Then you get to the next line. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What this shows us is that what we need more than food is forgiveness. And I think that they go, I think that Jesus put them hand in hand right there. You're praying for food and then you're praying for forgiveness as a reminder that what you need more than food is forgiveness. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not go hungry. Jesus came to offer us forgiveness that we might feast on him as our daily bread. Even at one point when he was tempted by the devil, says man cannot live on bread alone, but must live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so it says, forgive us our debts. When you pray, we should be asking God for forgiveness. Now, you might find it weird that it's forgive us our debts because how did most of you learn it? Forgive us our trespasses. But Jesus didn't say trespasses, he said debts. That act, the word trespasses comes from the Catholic tradition. He said debts. And of course, he's referring to our sins and our trespasses, the ways that we live life on our own terms instead of his. But he calls it debts because he's giving us an illustration to think about. Now, why does Jesus call sin debt? That's kind of a weird language. Well, it shows us that when we sin against God, there's a payment that is due. Imagine You get this relationally. If it, imagine if somebody borrowed a car from you and you're like, yeah, they're like, can I borrow a your car? You're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And then they took it joyriding, you know, doing donuts in the parking lot and then they just go and then they wreck it. And they wreck your possession. And in doing so, they disrespect you and they abuse your love. Now, you can be kind and nice and you can be as gentle as you want. But in order for things to be made right, somebody's got to pay for that wrecked car. And it's either going to be you or the owner of the car. But in order for things to be put back the way that they are, The way that they were, payment has to be made. That's what it means to uh, have atonement. There needs to be atonement. And so what this means is when we sin against God, we rack up debt. We disrespect him. We abuse his love. We take his possession and mistreat it so that we wreck it. And God says, there's payment for that. There can be no forgiveness of sins without the absorption of debt. Or as the book of Hebrews says, uh, there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so when we get to this thing, we, you're supposed to kind of in horror remember, God forgive us our sins, but it's not as easy as him just going, all right, you're forgiven. There's a debt to be paid. There's a payment to be paid. And you get this relationally when you have to forgive other people because this is why forgiveness hurts so bad and we're unwilling to forgive a lot of the time. Because you know that if you're going to forgive that person, you have to absorb the loss. You have to absorb the hurt. That's what comes with forgiveness. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're saying, God, please pay our debt. And church, look at me, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to pay your debt. In fact, When he died on the cross, the last phrase he said was, it is finished. It was an accounting term saying, paid in full. It is done. The debt has been paid. There is nothing, if you believe in Christ, that God is holding over your head. It's paid. Paid. First John 4:10 says, "And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. If that's not good to you, news to you, you're not listening. And so Jesus says, "Forgive us our debts. This is you need to be thinking about this and asking God to pay for your sins." And then he also tags on the line as we forgive our debtors." In other words, We need to be asking God to forgive us to the same degree that we're willing to forgive others. And that's terrifying. If you want God to forgive you and you wanna remain unforgiving towards others, you know nothing of the nature of God's love. Because when God's love forgives you, it changes you to the point where you start saying, I'm obligated to forgive others because of the love of Christ. In fact, if you look down to 14, some of the scariest verses in the Bible, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus isn't saying you have to earn your way to heaven through your actions, you're saved by faith and faith alone. But if you have true faith in him, it will start to manifest itself in offering to others what he has offered to you, which is forgiveness. And Jesus is doing this kindly because he knows how controlling it is when we don't forgive others. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're asking three things. First of all, when you get to this part of your prayer and you're, you're doing your prayer walk or you're sitting there in the morning and you get to forgive us, this is a good opportunity for you to confess your sins to God. In Martin Luther's book, Simple Way to Pray, at that point, he recites the Ten Commandments and how he's broken every one of them in the last 24 hours. And that's a good thing to do. And it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to remember that God is a God who forgives. Because if you're kind of questioning whether or not God forgives, you're probably not going to confess your sins. But if you're confident at the deepest parts of your soul that God forgives, you'll be free to confess your sins because you know it's already all paid for. And so it's a way for you to just make things right. And you can remember what Psalm 65 says, when iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our transgressions. So first, when you get to that part of the prayer, that's what you do. You confess your sins to God. Secondly, when you get to that part of the prayer, you need to take a close look at your heart to see if if you have bitterness towards other people. Now, you guys know that forgiveness is an everyday thing. That's why I think Jesus wants us to pray this every day. Because when people hurt you really bad, it's not just forgive and forget. Because you forgive one day, and then the next day, you hate them again. (laughs) And so you need to be praying this every single day to help God get rid of your bitterness. Because if you hold on to your bitterness, it will control you and destroy you. You guys have heard the whole adage, uh, Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. Uh, In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says that when you harbor bitterness in your heart, you're giving the devil real estate in your heart, and it's controlling you. And you guys, some of you are controlled right now by your own bitterness and lack of forgiveness. And this is why you need to pray this prayer every day, because only Jesus can help you forgive. And then, lastly, that's what you're praying God, help me forgive because I can't do it on my own. And so we get to the last line, deliver us from evil. You guys with me? Stay awake. Say yes, I'm with you. All right, a few of you are. Let's do this. Last line, great line. Deliver us from evil. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. There is temptation in this world. Oh my. The path you walk is not a safe path. We have a real enemy named the devil. Now, if you're new to Christianity, that might sound a little hocus pocus to you, but there, this is fact. Behind all the evil that happens in the world, there's invisible creatures, the devil and demons, who are once angels, who rebelled in pride against God, who hate God, and because humans are made in God's image, they hate us. They don't wanna see us worship him. They only want death, and they seek to cause destruction. And one of the ways that they tempt us is to blind us to the vision of who God is and what he has for us. The devil's been doing this since the garden. God gave everything to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what did the devil tempt them with? You know, God's really holding out on you. And they believed it. he does the same with us. This causes us to idolize, covet, lust, be self-reliant, to hurt, steal, lie, to preserve our image, to do things we don't want to do, to do things that we know we're not supposed to do and to not do things that we know we're supposed to do. Temptation is everywhere and it's coming at you all the time. Even if, if you're like, you know what? I know a good way to get rid of temptation. I'm just gonna be by myself. One time I was hiking and I'm like, this is great. There's no temptation around, no people around to make me angry. And then the Holy Spirit said, but you're here. <laughs> you take your stuff with you. You take your garbage with you wherever it goes. There's temptation everywhere. The temptation comes from the devil. The temptation comes from the broken world. And the temptation comes from the power of sin. And the sin is within us. And so what we need to be praying is lead us not into temptation. This is a prayer, again, rooted in identity. We need a leader. We're not capable of leading ourselves. I am sick and tired of hearing people say, just follow your heart. The scriptures say your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. It's not a good thing to trust. And anybody who's lived 15 years will tell you that. Don't follow your heart all the time. It'll really jack you up. It will really screw your life up. You will make some bad decisions. Follow your Lord because you need a leader and it's okay. It's okay that you need a leader. It doesn't make you a sissy makes you a sheep. And what this does is it roots us in our identity that God is our shepherd and we are his sheep. We are to follow his voice. We are to follow his lead. He is our protector and guider and he needs to lead us in the right path. And so then it says, but deliver us from evil. Now this has two layers. The first layer is the evil of sin. As Westerners, we like to think of sin as the actions we do, but it's not only the actions we do. When the Bible talks about sin, mostly it talks about sin as a power that is at hand, as a power in this world, as a power within us. And what it shows us is that we have this twisted, corrupt cancer within us that's always trying to twist us away from God and we need to be delivered from that power of sin. And so when you pray, deliver us from evil, what you're saying is, God, deliver me from the power that's bigger than me because I can't do it. And then secondly, you're also praying God, to deliver you from the evil of Satan and demons. Now, like I said, these are fallen angels and they hate us and they're powerful. I already quoted Martin Luther and Martin Luther said that one demon is stronger than a thousand men combined. Nobody can stand against him. But God can deliver us. In fact, one of the gospel great parts that we often overlook is not just that he came to forgive us our sin by laying down his life, but he came to conquer the devil. And he came to conquer sin and its power, and he came to conquer death altogether. That's why we meet on Sundays, because Sunday is the day that Jesus resurrected as a victorious king. And Ephesians 4 says that he ascended up into heaven, and as he did so, he gives gifts to men. Now, that's reference to when a king would conquer an enemy, they would ride through the city and just throw out gifts to bless his people. Jesus is our victorious king, and he's alive. The devil, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't just having nails put through his hands, he was having a nail put through the devil's head. Colossians 2 says that the record of debt that has stood against us with legal demands, Jesus has paid. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the devil and his authorities and put them to open shame. I love that. Just stripped them naked and he's shaming them by triumphing over them in the cross. This is what God has done in the death and resurrection. Now, the devil thought he was winning when he killed Jesus, but like a great judo master, he has no judo. Judo is the martial arts. When somebody's coming at you, you use their energy against you to pin them down. Jesus used all the momentum of the devil as they were trying to kill him to crush him. And so, yes, the devil is alive today, but he's greatly restrained. And yes, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. but he prowls around as a defeated enemy. It's like when a war is won, you know, a lot of times the enemy soldiers keep fighting, but they're just guerrilla outposts. The war is already over. And one day they will all be squashed out and they are being squashed out as the church is spreading all over Northern Nevada and the world, as the darkness is being pushed back. And one day our Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead, and on that day, evil will be no more. and so when we pray this, we pray the great theological truth, Christus victor, Christ is victorious, and we stand in his victory. This is the hope of the church. So we admit to God when we pray this that we are not strong as we think we are. the. the the gospel of America is exercise your bravado, dig down deep, grab the light with inside and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But the gospel is not the John Wayne gospel. John Wayne's great, I love him. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is admit that you're weak and broken and he will pick you up. When we pray this, we admit that sin and evil is stronger than we are but he is stronger than it. And we remember the great truth that the New Testament says that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And if we resist the devil, he will flee. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you. You're so good to us. You're our great shepherd. I pray that this, these six lines that people would memorize them that people would use these as a way to pray every day. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just tell us how to pray. You gave us the content for our prayers. And we love that because we often get lost. We thank you, Father, that you want us to come to you like children, that we don't have to speak to you with proper language, that we can just talk to you as a child talks to his dad. Lord, I pray that we would become a praying church. We pray for a praying movement to happen all over northern Nevada, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And this we pray for your glory. Amen.